Welcome to the Church Collective Podcast, episode 146. This is Chris Bellamy, and today we're with Garrett Davis from Elevation Church talking about live recording and broadcasting with Elevation, as well as his work with the newest Passion Project. How long have you been at Elevation? I've been at Elevation for five years. Okay. Yep. Um, well, maybe just a little shy of five years. I, I kind of worked, um, I had this studio in Salisbury, Maryland for a while and I, I guess to like cap the story off I uh when I was a junior in college back in 2006 I dropped out of school um just because I was a business major and didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do with that yet um I was really into the record label scene I had a band and we toured and um, it was kind of like this metal band, sort of Christian, sort of not. Um, but anyway, was doing that. Didn't love school. I loved going to, you know, meeting people, being part of something, kind of having some sort of trajectory. But somewhere in the middle of that, I decided, like, I don't know if this is what I want to do. I definitely want to be in music. And so I ended up, um, I'll never forget it. So about August of. 2006 I had decided like all right I'm gonna drop out of school and just work for the school save up money and look for some opportunities so I had some friends of some friends who worked for this record label in Nashville um, they needed an IT guy and that's what I did in school to make you know side money was just uh, and help to help actually pay for going to school was do IT stuff um, install smart classrooms so I was more tech oriented um, so anyway, I, they needed an IT guy at the record label and I was like, oh man, this is my win. So I was already not taking classes. I ended up proposing to my girlfriend, quitting my band, quitting my job and moving out to Nashville all within a, after these talks within the span of like a week or so in September or kind of like around the beginning of October. It was the most insane week of my life. Um, to make such a quick shift, but I felt like really, honestly, I felt like God was just giving me a way to see an open door and kind of walk through it. And it didn't pan out the way I thought, which was the greatest thing. Um, I mean, six months after moving there, the record label went bankrupt. I had become the IT director for the label. I was one of the last employees to officially get let go. And this was a major label. Like they had some big artists and it was uh, basically like a Sony red distro imprint kind of thing. Um, so I was kind of broke, engaged. My then fiance, now wife of 12 years, moved out there and, you know, to basically support me following my dream. And um, I started just doing some IT work around town and eventually got a gig landing, um, landed a gig building studios for i mean all kinds of artists a lot of country producers a lot of country artists some christian singer songwriters producers so i would install i kind of use my background and my music knowledge and kind of got into engineering and it just kind of blew up like i i started installing studios for people and um then that turned into being like building custom Pro Tools rigs, which turned into assisting the assistant on big sessions, and then 
I just kind of fell in love with the studio atmosphere and kind of merged the love of music and the love of tech and got into engineering, um, into Pro Tools and just learned as much as I could. Ended up um, a couple years after that, my wife and I felt uh, like we needed to be near family for a season because we were very newly married and just a lot of life change and um, kind of wanted to create like a good vibe and be near family a little bit. So we moved back to Maryland and I started a studio and just freelancing. So I did that for about, I want to say six or seven years. And through that, I met Mac um, at Elevation, Mac Brock, and he was overseeing, he was one of the main worship leaders and he was overseeing all production. Um, and I had produced a record for um, a really good buddy of mine and we met this uh, guy through the label named Malcolm and he connected me and Mac and started doing some work for Elevation from afar, um, just mixing stuff for YouTube for them. And I had been kind of simultaneously following Elevation outside of working with them and following them online and um, watching. They had what was called then the Elevation Network where they would broadcast their live worship experience. And I would tune into that before I would go to church at my church um, where I kind of oversaw some small volunteer teams and stuff. But anyway, just started a connection with them and really doing more and more with Mac and the team there. And they had some needs and I ended up coming down and engineering a project for them and then doing a live recording for them. And it just kind of blew up out of there. And eventually my wife came down with me and we ended up, um, kind of interviewing over a course of like a weekend and they had offered me a job and it, it was just crazy. God like orchestrated it all, put it all together. And, um, in May of 2014, we moved down here and I started working there full time, kind of closed the studio, set aside the freelance engineering for a while and just kind of dove right in. Hey, so you were there when Mac and, and James and, Lance and all of them were still there. Yeah. Yep. So cool. I'm Max, one of my best friends. He's a brother. Uh, um, he, so he was basically, I guess you would say my boss and I worked with him. Um, I, so he would produce stuff. I would just engineer and edit. Um, I had a lot of live recording background, but prior to elevation and they were doing lots of, you know, in the worship world, live records are kind of a thing. And so, um, he just needed help in that and wanted me to take it and run with it and try to make it better. And while he could focus on the bigger picture production music side of things and yeah, we just kind of teamed up and, um, was hanging around Mac, Lance, all those guys. Um, James did a record with him first, the first like full record I did at elevation was wake up the wonder. Um, I guess the first project was only King Forever doing a bunch of stuff uh, from my studio in Maryland. But then, yeah, we did um, also this like little EP thing called the Raise to Life EP. And then Wake Up the Wonder, James was on that record. And then we did Here's in Heaven after that. 
and then a bunch more since. Wake Up the Wonder was the one in um, the Charlotte Arena, right? Yep, that was the first time Elevation had ever done anything in an arena. Yeah, I was at that with my wife. Were you? Yeah. That's awesome. That was insane. That was just learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes, learned a lot. And um, yeah, I actually, I didn't go home for like two days during that and just ended up sleeping on the, um, like there was this, I rented all this gear from Nashville. We literally flew a guy from Charlotte to Nashville. He rented a box truck, picked up the rig from Rack and Roll in Nashville and drove it overnight. We tested it the night before loading into the arena. And we were in the arena. We did a setup day and then a show day. And nothing went as planned. We were there way later than we thought we would be. I think it was 4 a.m. the day of the show was by the time we actually started legit sound checks. Wow. It, everything was just running behind um, from rigging to stage setup to backline. Um, and it was just the rig I rented was crazy. Like, I had a bunch of problems with some things on it and um, and some cabling. Not, not their fault, but... Um, it just, it was all analog, you know, 200 feet of analog um, snake and into the small room with no, HV, no HVAC. And so I had, you know, 96 channels of preamps and converters and computers running in a small room with no AC. It was just a recipe for disaster, but it, God blessed it and we captured the whole thing successfully and yeah, learned a lot from that. But it was a special moment for the church, for sure. It was a big step of faith to try to fill an arena and make a record after that, you know, based on that. And it was crazy. Wow. Yeah, my wife got a, um, a couple shots in the videos. I was, oh, yeah. I was mad because everyone, like, it was obviously they purposely, you know, cropped me out <laughs> yeah they like slow panned you out of the shot because <laughs> we were right we were right up front um basically i was like standing at the stage in front of the sub in front yeah. of james's pedal board oh um, nice. james had got me the tickets and um and i'm thinking like man i'm gonna make it on this dvd <laughs> you know yeah and um Every every shot is like you'd get to my wife, you know, she's worshiping, and as soon as it, you'd see my hand cut. <laughs> oh gosh, that's funny. But, yeah, yeah, dude, that was a crazy night. Um, there was one shot I'll never forget on that record because I don't see anything until you know, like you're watching like the final cut of everything put together and seeing um, they had this jib over James. I was like, that is the coolest shot I've ever seen. It's just like so dope anyway it was just him playing like this part and all the lighting and smoke and everything was so super cool looking and first time i'd seen like a jib do a cool shot like that but anyway was it uh, when he was he was just playing by himself for a little while like for 30 yeah, seconds yeah yeah i remember that i have that it's, video it's, yeah it was cool that was awesome so, yeah man so after that um like what's the process like after that you, you get you capture all of the um the content 
and then what's what's next yeah so the goal of a live record is to really capture the magic of those moments you know this i mean that's what worship is it's just moments with god and so trying to make sure you capture the crowd and the energy you know from the actual night of the recording has you only get one shot at it you know you can't fake great atmosphere in post and so making sure um you get all that proper is just like a big task for anybody that's going into a live record and i i, I like to say I, i've done quite a few live records now and each one's the same um in the in the end goal is to you know make sure these things translate to the listener and you know whether they're at home doing the dishes or driving to work or just playing something they hear it in a spotify playlist or whatever it is or watching it on youtube that they're able to kind of feel that moment and feel like they're in the room so mindset wise i go into this mode of like well let's prioritize that and anything we do if we do overdubs or any kind of shifts let's make sure that we're prioritizing that end goal of the listener being able to experience these moments and you know create an atmosphere where they feel like you know they're um, taking part in worship so i guess that's the goal and mindset wise i just kind of put it on myself to start editing with all that in mind i break out all the sessions the first i mean the first 12 hours after a live recording i can't focus until i take everything back well first i back everything up and i like have a drive that goes with all the gear um if we rented the gear or anything i basically send it with that in order so there's always like a physical backup and then i make i take the main drives and then I make a backup and I put that in the safe. Um, so no matter what happens, studio burns down, I have a raw copy of what we captured that night. Um, I can't sleep until that happens. And I've never been burned by it, but the one time I don't do that, I guarantee you something will happen. So that's just kind of my thing is I do a backup and then the next day or sometimes even that night, um, like I just did a record for passion and I mean it was the fastest turnaround I've ever been a part of but I'll basically go and I'll break out all of the tracks into separate songs so you know when we're doing a live recording you're just recording it in a linear you know over time so it's like a two and a half hour session with 96 tracks some things are used on some songs some things aren't and so um, the goal is for me to kind of like take a broad look at everything. If there was any issues in the session, I'll go and fix that to so say like sometimes, um, if you don't get a great setup and rehearsal day where you can get gains dialed in really well, you know, things will change. You put 15,000 people in a room too. players are going to be more excited. They're going to play a little hotter. So I'm constantly kind of, adjusting preamps as the recording's happening but say if i miss something or something was out of phase i'll flip it um because most that's the way you're recording it's not gonna keep phase flip or or phase reverse to tape 
So I'll go ahead and I'll, you know, uh, audio suite and correct the phase that way. I'll make sure all the crowd mics are labeled properly. So if I'm handing it off to somebody, it makes sense to them. I'll put things in stereo pairs. I'll group things. I'll color code. And then once I create that master template, I'll go ahead and I'll break out the songs, which is basically just highlighting um, the end of the song before it, meaning like the click. not So like before the last note of that and then the start of the song after the song I'm going for um, to where you hear a key change or something where it's obviously going to roll in. That song will be done by then. And I'll I'll basically consolidate those files and save copy in of all that. So whoever I'm sending it to has a open copy or a, a isolated copy of just that song. And then we could get to work. But I'll do, um, after that, I'll take the click track that we recorded to and I'll make a tempo map off of that in Pro Tools. And then I'll just start maybe like editing, tightening the drums where I need to, um, going through and mentally getting up. Oh, this was a mess up. Let me see if we have uh, another take from the, you know, we'll typically do a dry, uh, recording beforehand. So if there's any like mess ups where we want to keep what we did that night, but there's a couple notes here, there, I can just fly them in. Um, sometimes I'll playlist the songs. So if we did elevation, I don't feel like we we don't we do the live recordings as a show, so we don't like dub, do songs twice or redo a song at the end of the night. We we do kind of have a doomsday lull that I could say that, and we can re-record something if we absolutely have to. Um, but the goal is to not do that because that just puts people in the mindset of oh, it's a recording, or we're just trying to have an experience. Um, kind of takes people out of it for a minute. But, um, yeah, I'll just kind of get everything, I don't know, prepped and ready. And so whoever's producing the record can have, and I'll also bounce some roughs out pretty quickly. And normally when I'm in a truck, I'll be kind of simultaneously doing a truck reference mix. And I, I always record the front of house mix as well um, in case there's a broadcast and I'm mixing for broadcast. Uh you know, there's different things that happen on the broadcast side versus what's happening in the room. So I typically record front house and truck mix and I'll bounce those out and send them off to, you know, I know like our lead pastor, pastor Steven, he, he'll want stuff real quick just to relive the moment or just be listening to things. And our worship pastor and worship leaders, sometimes they're like, Hey, send me that mix, whatever. So I'll do that. And, um, yeah, then we just dig in start editing overdubbing anything we really need to the goal of a live worship record is to try to keep as much of it as possible but sometimes environmental things kind of take that option out of there sometimes really just depends on the room and how well prepared everybody is and whether or not we're gonna have to do overdubs but I will like I'll at least get the stems from Ableton um, so like when we're recording, I'll record all the multi-track stems that's coming off of Ableton that the band's playing to in their ears and the backing tracks, quote unquote. But I won't, um, I won't keep those stems. I'll basically dump those and pull in actual multi-track stems so I could have independent control of all the elements within the song. 
And so whoever's going to mix it has independent control if it's me or somebody else or whatever. So that's really important for me. So you're kind of not bound if you know, something comes out a certain way. And I have some tricks that we do so stuff doesn't bleed through the house that much, Ableton tracks wise. And But we might want those tracks actually for the actual album. So I'll put them in afterwards if I need to. But it's important having all those separated for me, for my workflow, what I like. Are you involved with the video aspect of it too, or are you just doing the audio? Yeah, no, I I um I don't really handle much video. For there was a season where I was um, overseeing our worship creative team, and um, my team handled all the video, but I I mean they I wasn't ever editing video or anything like that. It was them. Like we have a really great team of people that handle that and so yeah they basically do all the video stuff i do the audio stuff so you get all the audio down and then hand it over to video and they sync it is that how it works yeah so normally i'll feed um a couple things happen so we'll be locked to ltc um so we'll have a master clock and master time code generator that will feed the recording truck or whatever audio recording rigs. And then um, all the cameras will also sync to that LTC. And then in theory, it's an easy, just like there's a tool that they use to sync it up real quick. We'll also do a slate as a backup to where we'll put something on a screen and they'll video it. Um, and we'll also do some kind of like old school, like, slate like drumstick or hand clap kind of thing at the start of a recording um but yes essentially that's what happens i'll give them reference mixes and they'll start editing to those reference mixes that's cool so what are you doing um like week to week at elevation on sundays yep um i oversee all of our broadcast audio so the broadcast mix uh, for years I've been, I was the only one doing it. And then we've kind of raised up a team of guys now and I oversee that team. So I'm ultimately responsible for the sound of our broadcast mix. Um, also pretty recently, I guess last year I s started getting more involved with our oversight of our live sound from a, we've basically moved all of our, um, sound engineers even from a live standpoint to out from the tech department to and underneath the bed of our like worship department. And that's been a cultural shift that we've done. That's been like heavy on my heart mainly because I feel like sound is such an integral part of worship. You can't really have one in, in the context of how we do church at elevation. It's very integral. Like you, we don't really, we're not doing, we have a big P PAs in each room and it's really important that worship is really for the whole worship experience, but especially for worship that people hear things proper, properly, the mix is good. And so I've wanted to bring all of our engineers underneath the worship department. So they all kind of dotted line to me, but 
ultimately the worship leader has the authority over what's happening at that campus from a worship in worship band and sound engineer standpoint. So I oversee that as well um, across all of our, really the whole church. And um, that's kind of like my weekend vibe is the sound. I'm nine times out of 10, I'm going to be in the broadcast room mixing, but I'm trying to kind of step out of just mixing and more in a, into a leadership role. So that, um, yeah, hope that it answers that question on yeah. what I do day to day. Um, during the day, it's a million different things. It's in the studio, working on projects, mixing videos for YouTube, um, doing new demos. Um, my team also handles all of our Ableton multi-tracks, all the asset management, um, record label stuff. So I'm kind of, it's kind of crazy during the week and then goes more into like concentrate and focus on church during the weekend. Do you guys post like, um, your live stream? Like, is it there yes. for people to watch after it's done? Yeah. So you can go to, um, elevationchurch.online and you can watch on demand the i mean everything is live live there's no posts there's no edits it's pretty vulnerable actually but it's just we just put it out there um you can watch it on demand starting on monday and then and I, it rebroadcasts so i guess the best way to say it is 9 30 and 11 30 on sundays it's live live then they rebroadcast it at 1.30, 3.30, 5.30, 8.30, and I think 10.30 p.m. It, and all that is is whichever sermon pastor picked from Saturday night or 9.30 or 11.30 will rebroadcast that. And that'll go up. Um, and that's on, that's like streaming. You can't hit play and pause and all that. Then Mondays you can start essentially Paul um sorry I'm gonna turn on my do not disturb I'm getting blown up with all these notifications. Can you hear a notification when it comes on? Nah. Oh, cool. It was distracting me. Um yeah, so Monday at noon we put out two things. We put out our sermon archive, which is basically just the sermon content, and that is post mixed by someone on our team named Ryan Manette. He's actually posted a video on how he does it, and he's he's really good at it. I used to do it for years too, but um, he's taken it. He he kills it. He does a great job. That's what go we call that archive. That goes on YouTube, um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, whatever, and that's just the sermon, but the full worship experience on demand. So you can hit play, you can pause it, whatever is elevationchurch.online. You can watch that all week until the next sermon comes out or until Sunday morning. Um, that is, so like this week is crazy. We've overseeing the engineers were like, I didn't mix, um, Saturday night. I was working on this in the studio and then Sunday we had some shifts happen and I had to go in and actually mix nine thirty and eleven thirty live when I wasn't expected. So it was basically like, uh, just run in, mix. I was set up for success though because the team that does it um, is so dialed. Like things are, we've over the five years, I've pushed and pushed and pushed. 
for like certain practices and things to happen. And now it's great in a situation like this weekend where I have to get go in and mix because we had to put whoever was mixing on a different desk and fill a hole in a different campus or whatever. Like we're all kind of like live in flexibility. Um, so anyway, um, but pastor Steven actually picked Saturday to broadcast cause he felt that was his best sermon, best representation of what he wanted out there. So that's, um, my buddy's mix, um, guy named Linker. Um, anyway, so yeah, that you, you can, to answer your question, I think that was the long winded version. You can watch the whole worship and everything online whenever you want on our website. So is, is every campus set up to to stream or just the main campus? No. So we have what we call our broadcast campus. Um, and that is where the, that's the only place we stream from. Pastor Steven is live. And then we have all we have 17 campuses, physical campuses, and we have what we call point to point where they're receiving our normally a song point to point like the song before the sermon the sermon and the close or like sometimes we'll do a sermon climb after his sermon um they're receiving that basically isolated audio and video and they're able to they'll get our click down an isolated channel and our md and they'll be able to play in sync with what's happening at our valentine campus which is our broadcast campus in real time so we essentially we lease fiber between the um, between the sites campuses, and they're able to just lock in live with us. And we can res- we send right now we send eight channels of audio, and we receive two back from every single campus. And um, that is independent of what's happening on our web stream or or our broadcast mix. That's mainly for what you know our whatever people are watching on Facebook, YouTube, elevationchurch.online, Twitch, we're broadcasting live to all those platforms. So my mix is independent of what's happening between each campus. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so like say pastor Stevens, um, preaching at a different campus, which we've done that before. So would the stream be the the, the worship from the main, the broadcast campus, but then Pastor Stephen from the other campus? Correct. Wow. Yeah. That's intense. <laughs> yeah. He, I mean, 90% of the time he is at our broadcast campus. And so it's a little bit easier to manage. Um, not that he doesn't like to go, but we just have it best prepped. You know, a big part of our ministry is what we do outside of Sunday, which is, you know, the biggest reach we have is online. And TV, which is still, believe it or not, a really big part of ministry for us. Um, You know, we do national, local, regional uh, TV shows, essentially, which is just a sermon broken up. So we have the best way to capture that stuff at our broadcast campus. And so he'll normally preach from there. And we, we could just support him the best because we've built the campus for you know being able to broadcast well to all the other campuses it's a little bit more logistically difficult if he's at another campus and we're going to pipe that through valentine and then broadcast it out but it's been done before and um you know that's what he wants to do that's what we'll do 
Is he he uses a handheld? But do you have do you have like a lapel clipped onto him just in case? No, we just have a so he'll always have two mics with him. So we always have a handheld and then a um, backup handheld, and then we have a um, we also have a headset and then a backup headset as well. So we're always ready with a backup at all times. And we've had to use it a few times, but it, it's not not a backup on him. It's more of a anybody the team that supports him at our broadcast campus. Like we have certain protocols in place to where when we decide to go to a backup mic, um, or he's even called for it before if RF was dropping out, um, which is very rare. But if you know the few times, I mean, in five years it's been handful of times that it's actually happened but um he he's called out for it before and we've just brought it out to him but it's pretty seamless normally it's so quick that we can cut to another camera um and no one will even notice it really yeah and he's not wearing any ears right no he's not but we have a pair of wedges um on the downstage edge and underneath his um there's like a little staircase right outside the stage and we have wedges underneath of those and perforated top or floor so the sound can go up through that so he can he can hear pretty well and how do you communicate with him is there like a confidence monitor in the back that for him if there's like a need or stuff that's going on that he needs to know about while he's preaching there's a talkback monitor that he can look at and that has his clock on it and then also um, any kind of, you know, scripture reference or whatever. Oh, okay. um, so he doesn't have to stay head down. He can kind of talk to the people and still have that as a, just a visual reference. Yeah. So okay. if anything does happen and we need to get a message to him, that's how we'll do it. It'll just be on that talkback monitor. I'm trying to remember because the, the last time I was there, I wasn't really paying attention so much to the tech stuff. Cause, right. Because the number one the band was on fire and then he was on fire you know and it's just like well that's good man that's that's the that's the goal of our church is to we we don't we don't want it to be about the tech we don't want it to be about like the flash or the excellence or whatever we want it to be about the connection and i think that you know limiting the distraction is part of that yeah i remember thinking going in like keeping mental notes like oh check out what the, you know what are they using go look at all you know what kind of cameras are they using what kind of mic is pastor steven i'm thinking all these things that i kind of want to come away with yeah and then i leave and i'm like not one of those things that i even notice or remember to you know take note of for sure but that's a good yeah. thing that is a good thing that's encouraging but i can get you all those details whenever you need oh yeah yeah that's cool so you said you did the uh, you were doing the passion stuff. Is that the most recent one? Yeah, yep. Yeah. So I did that record, um, recorded that. Um, Sean Moffat mixed it and crushed it. Um, he's a one of my closest friends. He's he's a man. Um, but Jonathan Smith and Hank Bentley produced it, and um, John Duke. Uh, he was a big part of it too. Like he kind of manages that whole process for 
for passion and their record label and stuff. Um, but yeah, that was crazy. Um, I think it was like, uh, we recorded it. They kind of did a different, I've done one passion album prior to that. And that was back. It was the worthy record. Like not this past one, but two albums ago. Um, it was the last thing they did in the Georgia dome. And it was my first time ever recording in a stadium. So that was in, intense for sure. But um, anyway, this record, they changed it up and wanted to release the album at their passion conference. So we recorded it ahead of time and then had to obviously have it done in time for them to get it out to the digital platforms and everything for release for the actual conference. So that was that was crazy. That was a blast, though. And that was at four locations, right? The Passion Conference, yes, yeah. that was amazing. Um, Nick Geiger is a genius, and Taylor, their whole team at Passion, I was just blown away with how smart they are and how well dialed things were. So a few of us from Elevation got to be involved, which was kind of fun. Um, Zach and Nicole. Zach's our technical director at our broadcast location and kind of really technical director for our whole church, really. Um, and uh, Nicole Hambrick, she is our online production director. So she she's built the team that pulls off our broadcast. And um, they're, they're amazing. And they helped out a lot on the Passion online broadcast. Oh, so you, were you... Were you doing the online broadcast? No, I was not. Oh, okay. No, I um I was just recording. It was kind of like a last minute add-on, honestly. So they wanted to release a version. They basically wanted to they did the record and then they wanted to capture these songs again live at the conference, you know, cuz why not in front of 40,000 people? Yeah. Um Whereas the album was done at their church, more intimate um, setting, way less people, obviously. And then you have this huge production and all these arenas across the country. So they brought me in to kind of just put up a ton of extra crowd mics, record the band, all the music side. I didn't record any of the sermon or and I didn't have to worry about any mixing or anything i was they had a different guy and team that was doing the broadcast mix so i was able to focus on just you know making sure head and um, head amp levels were good and had good isolation and great crowd mics up and was able to try to spend more focus capturing the energy of the rooms and then a very very fast edit break out of the songs that process i talked about earlier I did that overnight um, with a we had basically we had a guy in Nashville and um, Jacob he basically edited oh, I, I broke out the files sent it to him he took them edited them overnight um, basically just like tuning and tightening up the drums a bit and then this Sean Jacob, mixed it Jacob Arnold? Jacob yeah okay. Yep. Yeah, he's the man. He's an amazing drummer and great producer, mixer, 
engineer, all those things. Um, he, he slays. Uh, and then Sean mixed it in like an hour, and it was up by like 2 p.m. the next day on Vimeo and YouTube and stuff. So um, that was ins- that was just crazy, insane. Yeah, that's a nuts turnaround. So yeah. basically, like when I, when this stuff is done, like you start, like yeah, you it's don't weird sleep at all. <laughs> it's weird because it's so you're exhausted mentally, but you're so amped that you just successfully captured this record or project or whatever. You're just stoked to get on, you know, dive right in. Um, and part of it too, honestly, is I just want to quality control and make sure I actually got what I think I got. And at least mentally, like, tell myself it's okay to rest now, you know? So that's why I kind of go to work right after we capture. Um, but with the passion thing, that was just so fast. It, it's crazy. I've done a lot of live records. I mean, a lot. And that was the fastest thing I've ever been a part of. It was amazing. Like, did you but sleep that night? The At, at the conference? Yeah. Um, so I think I was done my part at like 2 a.m. And our call time was at 5 a.m. the next day. And so I just walked to the hotel. The hotel was close. Um, I got done at 2, walked to the hotel, slept for a couple hours, took a shower and came back kind of thing. Like it was very, very quick. Um, and that schedule lasted for three or four days. Like it was pretty intense and by the end of it i just remember like man i just need to get on this plane and pass out and uh so that's what i did yeah so uh which which location were you at i was at the main location state farm arena okay so i was recording they had teams recording at every arena doing like basic multi-tracks but i i brought in way more crowd mics and like I said, I had an isolated split, so I could do everything, and I, and I was just focused on just some music, essentially. So, um, but yeah, I was at the main one. That was the one where like Christian and Brian Carl were at that one, right? Um, yeah, I forget. I don't know who was at it. it it's all a blur right now. Because I know, because Sean Curran and like James Duke were at the the other. Georgia location, right? Well, no. So what's crazy is they all played at that. So all of the so Cody Carnes, Kerry Job, um, Crowder, Mosaic, Passion. It started off the first night. Actual Passion band was at State Farm, and then the next morning, I think Crowder was there, and then Kerry and Cody that night. And then the next day, I don't, I don't even know who was there. Uh, oh, Sean Curran was there the next day. So it, it was everybody played at every, uh, every spot, every venue. So okay. there's four venues. So they were literally flying them. They'd finish a set, have their backline pieces taken off stage, and they'd jump in a van, go to the airport, and fly private to the next venue because you can't do commercial with that kind of tight schedule like so they had to orchestrate so many logistics and making sure everybody could be at every venue 
That's so crazy. they just basically rotated. So I got to record everybody at least once. You stayed put. I stayed put. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. I was, I was following everybody on social media. Like what? And I was like, so like, what is going on? People are in different places and like who's playing with who, you know, like, I know. Yeah. I can imagine how that, how crazy that looked. Um, just from afar because you they would they would keep breaking to like the split screen where they would have all four plus online like on the split screen kind of thing and uh it was just insane to see like well i just record like they were just here for the morning session and now it's the afternoon session and they're you know either across town in the other atlanta one or in dallas or dc like it was it was insane Wow. And how about, you know, the song, um, is it called Step Into the Light? Yeah, the one Sean just released. Yeah. Like, w- yeah. what was the deal with that? Because I know it originally wasn't on the album, right? And and then a ton of people were requesting that song. Yeah. So he recorded it live at Passion. So that's, those are the track that that's essentially one of the reasons that I, I was just there recording all that stuff. So you never know what's going to happen. And they just wanted to make sure we got it all, so we recorded it. That's cool. And they put it out. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I, re- I mean, a ton of people have been like texting me. Have you heard this song? Like sending me links. I'm like, yeah, I've heard it. <laughs> Dude, he's amazing, and um, I got to meet him and kind of spend a little bit of time with him when we cut their record, like the actual album. Um, and he's just like the nicest dude ever. Like just stoked makes amazing music and i i was actually if i met him when he was in belarive a long time ago yeah and um so anyway i actually reminded him of that he I, of course he didn't know I, like he didn't remember that but um yeah I, i've been a fan of him for a while he's just a really gifted worship leader in general i remember there was a couple months where i, I thought Man, the guy from Belarive and the pa- the passion guy just sounds so similar. <laughs> That's... Like, it dawned on me like, wait, it might be the same guy. <laughs> well, the first record I did with them, I think, was his first time doing anything with passion. Um, I mean, I could be wrong on that. I don't know for sure. But at, that was at least the first time I saw him with passion and was like, wait a minute. That's that guy. So um, I didn't know what was going on or what. I thought Bellary was still a thing at that point. Yeah. But I was wrong. Um, it's I hard think to was... miss his voice. Like, it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty um, unique. Yeah, he's got a, for sure, he has a unique style and texture for sure. Um, same thing with Mac. Like, I, you know, like when Mac Brock's leading worship, you know, he kind of has a way he does it that I don't think anybody else does that or at least doesn't do it to that level. Um, it's very interesting. You know, each each worship leader at, you know, Chris Brown's different than Mac or different than, uh, Tiffany, different than Jane or whoever. Um, they're all so bring such different, um, kind of gifts to meeting worship. So did you do, uh, were you a part of Mac's recent album? Yeah, so I actually got to record some vocals for it. And I mixed a video, I mixed the video version of Greater Things 
Um, he did this really awesome video in a garage and he didn't want to use the studio. He wanted it to be like an actual performance. So I got to mix that. Um, so, and I think I recorded vocals for two or three songs, but, um, yeah. So he, he still lives in Charlotte and so we hang out pretty regularly. Um, and he's just like, I don't know, him, him and Meredith are the best of the best, like such great people. They're as genuine and as true as it gets for sure. And so, uh, He's just somebody I just love being around, love working with, love uh, doing life with. He kills it. So um, when he asked me to do a couple of things for his record, it was like a no-brainer to like be involved however I could help. Yeah, I I was um, – we had him on the podcast when, when that came out. And I was surprised when I talked to him because, number one, I, I just assumed he was like a, like a studio gear nerd. Dude. And I was asking him stuff and he's like, I don't know. I, I don't care. I just, you know, whatever. And I was like, I, I just had this, this kind of mental picture of him being this, like, like a buff with like, you know, all the priests, his compressors, his mics, you know, and everything. He was like, I don't, you know, whatever sounds good. And, and so like, I had like, so a list of questions I was going to ask him. And I was like, oh, okay. I can't ask you any of those, you know, cause I was, right. I wanted to know like what mic did he use? What pre's was he, you know, what, what does he like for, you know, is he using outboard compression, you know, whatever. And I was, I was ready to go into that with him. And he was like, I don't know. <laughs> Dude, that's so funny because he, like I'm the gearhead. He's not. So in the studio, it'll always be like, um, he's like, Hey, I just need to track this real quick. And I'm like, all right, let me set this up and this up and, give me 30 minutes or whatever. And he's like, no, I mean, I, I just want to record, like, what's the simplest thing. And that, re- that he actually taught me a lot about, um, not getting in the way. I think a lot of guys coming up, let gear get in the way of what, um, especially in the worship world, what God's trying to do in the moment. And it, sometimes you just got to strip all that crap out and be like, Hey, let's just let's just be in this moment. Forget these distractions and just, um, you know, use the tools to work for us, not us kind of like working our way around to use these tools because they're cool or expensive or whatever. Um, a lot of people get that wrong, and I think that's that's something I get a lot of questions about. Just even on Instagram, social media. Oh, what gear do you use for your broadcast mix? What what do you? How do you make a live album? Um, how much do I have to spend for this? And I'm like, Hey, whatever your budget is, that's your budget. So try to be smart. Don't worry about it so much. Just try to improve incrementally as you can. Um, and sometimes I get a I, probably the number one question I get is about broadcast mixing and, um, about drum samples in a broadcast mix and, uh, about, using like what desk I use and I'm like hey and there's these you know tech directors or or worship leaders that are forced to have to figure out how to make a broadcast mix sound like elevation or whatever and they're asking me about drum samples and I'm like well what's your setup like why do you need drum samples again for a 
live broadcast mix, that's just like, to me, that's just creating more headache than you need. Like it, it's way simpler than that. Just get great tones and have a great consistent drummer and you'll be halfway there. I mean, I, I don't use a snare sample in my broadcast mix or Tom samples and everybody sees triggers on the drums at elevation and, and they go, Oh man, what are you using slate samples live? And I'm like, no, I'm just, they're, they're used for gates, uh, to trigger. They're used to literally trigger the gates on the Tom. So I don't have to think about it and I can move on to something else. Like making sure I hit the, I push up the guitar to the right part of the song. Um, so mindset wise, I'm like, you're thinking way too technical, way too detailed right now. Just take a step back. Broadcast mixing is all about translating what's happening in the room to people that are watching online that, you know, they might be in their kitchen or, you know, in their living room and watching over Apple TV and kids running around. It's important for me to do my job to just get things to translate so they can feel that energy even in the chaos of whatever is happening around them. So no one cares about drum samples. Um, and so I try to kind of push that myth out or just get people thinking about what the your job as an engineer is to do, is to just translate the magic that's happening in front of you, the simplest, fastest, most efficient way possible to those that are on the other end, whether it be an album or whatever. Um, Mac needing to record something like we were talking about or a church broadcast mix or you know, um, a songwriting session that's happening in the moment and your job is to just kind of capture the magic that's happening so they can work on it later or whatever and just stay out of the daggone way. Um, <laughs> no one cares if a hit song was recorded on a $300 SM7B or a $10,000 U47. The end listener on K-Love does not care at all about that or the person listening on AirPods during a jog while you're broadcasting your church's mix. They don't care about what gear you have in front of you. All they care about is, you know, am I able to hear that message or feel that energy of that worship experience or whatever. So, but that being said, I'm a major gearhead and I love all the details and I love all the gear. So I could talk about that forever. It's funny you mentioned that because I've, I've seen that, conversation at least three times in the last week about drum samples like especially Bethel everybody's asking what what snare sample are they using for their snare you know <laughs> yeah so I'm good friends with uh, both Luke and Chris um, over at Bethel Chris I don't think is there anymore but um, Luke oversees their online broadcast mix and he literally made a amazing video about every single detail so people just need to go watch that video and your questions will be answered and i've seen him on chats and threads and stuff just even be like hey i already made a video about it i'm yeah. not going to explain it again just go watch this um i think i mean to me his his mix slays like it's the best um it doesn't and i actually went out to bethel and hung out with him and we talked about the mix and the workflow and stuff and 
I would love to be able to mix the way he does. I with our workflow and the way we do online church, I'm not able to do that just because of the all the send and receive we have to do. You know, we we can't have have that much delay, and um, we have basically like for every campus we have a campus pastor. Well, for online we have multiple online hosts is what we call them and we do a pre and post show and sometimes we'll go to two or three or four locations and be synced up and they're all using my feed so I can't have any delay in that because that's delaying how they're hearing things and the way they're able to communicate back so it gets pretty complicated for us so we're we're on an actual digital console and I'm mixing with faders mostly I do use some plugins some waves plugins and it works great i think i think we get a pretty decent result and i think the guys that are mixing when i'm not mixing i think they get a good result and um we're building a team off of that it's a very streamlined process and then um luke at bethel i mean mix sounds so good it but it takes a lot of skill to get something to that level there's people that even get his template or samples or whatever. And, you know, they're not Bethel. Your church is not Bethel music, not those musicians. So you're not going to sound exactly like they sound. And that could be a hard realization sometimes. But you also have to put in perspective, you know. A lot of churches are using volunteer musicians, um, you know, and they might not be – 100% pro and might not know how to blend together acoustically like other churches, but it's all in how much you put into it. You know, that's not an excuse. That's a like, all right, well, you have things to focus on and work on your broadcast mix, your front house mix, your ear mix. All of those things will get incrementally better the more practice and time you put into refining, you know, the source, the sound of the source, and then you know, the player, so on and so forth. So the tone, I mean, all those things play so much into it. But I think Bethel takes the cake for me on, like, the best of all those worlds coming together. Their broadcast mix sounds amazing. Um, but I'm coming for them. One thing I really like about Elevations, the live and the the um, album stuff, is the, the toms, the floor toms. Like yeah, what? you do. <laughs> what did you say? I said, yeah, you do. Oh, yeah. Man, I obsess over them, honestly. What's, can, uh, can you go into detail about that? Yeah, it's no secret. I actually um, I did a post, the last record we did, about the drums and the whole setup. And I mean, there's no secrets. So for our live week-to-week, -week, we use... Um, a DW performer kit. It's just Maple classic DW kit. Um, it's a 12 and a, I think 12 and 16 inch Tom and 22 inch kick. And I'm using Sennheiser 904s on the Toms. And I'm doing, using, uh, these little D-drum triggers to help me trigger the gates. Super fast attack. Kind of like, I just listen for the release and 
with our music, it's normally um, typically set it and forget it threshold. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, there's not much secret. Scoop out a ton of um, 300, three to 500, um, boost a little bit of the good stuff. And it's not, not, I do, I do use parallel compression. So that's part of our drum sound in general. But then, uh, for our albums, it all, all that's been the same. The last four albums, it's been a DW collector series maple kit with a 13, 16 and 18 inch toms and unconventional thought is I use four fourteens on the four toms, the 16 and 18. And I use the new, newer four fourteens cause they handle SPL better than the old school stuff. And I'll put a pad on them and they get to me and I, I shot out probably 20, 20 different mic and Tom combinations with me and my team and both of our drummers our main platform drummers, Luke and Vincent. Um, and we shot those out and man, it was amazing. Like the difference and how glaringly well the 414 won, which I was kind of hoping it would, but it, and it was a blind test. Like, honestly, I literally recorded everything then came, had the guys, no EQ or anything, had the whole team come back in here and I just played them back. I mean, we shot out every mic you could think of, every typical usual, usual suspect on the toms. And yeah, 414s won. But the 904s were very close second. But I think the 414, the low extension you get from that condenser mic is just great. And the transient response you get off of the, you know, we're pretty famous, worship in general, but elevation it's kind of like we do a lot of floor time rods so you're just like 16 no floor time constant and it's very dynamic so lots of highs and lows and so those get really great transient response for that it allows me to kind of hear it great and the bleed isn't so bad depending on which model 414 you get so what um what heads do you like how are you tune your heads like what heads are you using are you yep. uh, taping them or? Um, maybe a little bit of moon gel, but for the most part, they're um, coated emperors and clear ambassadors, Remo heads on all, the, at least when we do a recording on tour, sometimes we use Evans. Um, but I, I typically like a coated on the top and a clear on the resonant. And that's it. And just that's, that's it, the standard. <laughs> Yeah, it's just simple. Um, it's just works for us. I don't know. Huh? Yeah, um, I love Matt, those performers. The every every time somebody asks me like, what kit should my church get? I say performer, the DW performer. Dude, they're amazing for the price. You know, you're looking at a couple grand for a five piece kit. That's amazing. Yeah. Like, it's a it's a really great deal. Um. I also love like the satin finish. Um, so we have the tobacco stain. Oh, it looks so good. Yeah. But yeah, Remo heads are better to me. I don't know. I We have 
our own drummer, like, I mean, we'll argue back and forth and depends on the, depends on what you're going for and who's playing. But for the most part, I found them to be the most consistent and last the longest. Mm-hmm. You know, we have some heavy hitters like Luke beats a crap out of some drum heads. And, um, I've, I have found personally that they just last way longer. Yeah. I, I have a collector's in my studio and then I got a performer at my church. Cool. And I swear sometimes I think the performer sounds a little bit better. It's weird, man. It, it kind of bugs me sometimes. <laughs> so he, this might sound dumb, but for me, the performer is easier to get in tune and sound really good. Right. Like you can get it sounding good faster. The collectors is a little bit more work. Yeah. But once it's dialed, it's like, oh my God. Yeah. Like the tone of it is so good. And um I'm all about the like low end extension. So we tune our toms to certain notes. And it's all about getting um, you know, consistently across all of our songs. You know, it'll be close to the tonic and it'll sound like you tuned it for the key of the song. Hmm. Um, and so we try to make like the 18 inch be as close to the one as possible. Um, just so, you know, typically when you're hitting an 18 inch, you're doing a big fill and you're hitting it on the one and you want it to sound huge. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, the collector's series just sound amazing once you get them dialed in. Yeah. And the intervals in between them sound really good. Um, so overall, I think it's my favorite. But the performer, again, very close second. And honestly, if I had to pick one or the other for a live setting and needing to be quick, I would probably go performer just because it's the best bang for the buck. It sounds really good. Great value. I don't know. Yeah. To each his own. I think I got mine or I got the performer on black Friday at like 20% off and it ended up being like 1300 for the kit. You know? I mean, that's ridiculous. That's amazing. And I think that's the part that hurts me <laughs> knowing how much my collectors was, you know, like, yeah, it's better to not think about it, man. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, people, people always ask in not to bash any of the drum companies like the boutique stuff, but you know, a lot of people, a lot of churches lately have been trying to get all those boutique kits. And I'm like, man, just get a performer. Like it's cheaper actually. Dude, I'm with you. And I, that's what I recommend to, to churches whenever I get hit up with that question, just cause I think it's, it's readily available. Typically any big city will have a shop or two with a couple of them in there. You know, you can get it in a pinch if you need. Um, I don't know. They're everywhere. Great value. It's the DW name, the brand. I don't know. It's my favorite. Yeah. The the boutique stuff is amazing in the right hands. You know, when you get guys that really know what they're doing, know their tone, know how to play to that kit, it's like unbeatable for sure. Yeah. I totally get it. But for your average church that you know week to week they might have different guys playing on the kit i don't know if that's necessarily justifiable because i don't know the the 
paying four times the amount for a drum kit um, just because it's a bigger name might not be the best smart for the budget overall or you know best use of dollars for that church so you're you're tuning the drums per the tonic per song like you're changing it no no we never change it per song but we have a lot of songs in C so C C sharp B flat um so I would say most of our like ballad stuff is kind or the kind of within that range like two or three notes and so we'll tune our toms 18 inches and really used all the time so that might be like for massive impact we don't tune it specifically to the note it just kind of resonates within kind of those notes in general so we'll do it more um kind of by ear to what just kind of sounds good and then sometimes we'll use a tune bot you know the uh those little tune bot things you can put on them and yeah. that'll read like the i guess the tension and the frequency response across each lug and so we'll tune everything to a certain number across all the lugs um top and bottom and we'll get like a really good bass typically where I like the tone is going to be around like a C or B flat on the 16 or 18. It just happens to be that some of our ballad worship songs are in that those keys. Mm. So it's not like when in the middle of a live recording, we say, all right, we did one song. Let's retune the drum kit to this next song. It, it just kind of happens to resonate within the keys of those songs yeah. perfectly. Uh, I don't know. It, it, it's way less complicated than I'm probably making it sound. We just tune it to some, tune it so it's like low and proud, sounds awesome and heavy, and resonates really well. That's what we tune it to. But it's important also with all the tom rides that we do to have enough attack. So you just have to be careful. Um, my biggest secret is that I've used. Matt Payne, who is an amazing musical director, drum tech. On our last few albums, he's come out and um, been our drum tech for the recordings. And that was a conscious decision I pushed for, I don't I think Here's in Heaven was the first thing we did. And for a drummer, that, so like the first recording... My goal was to get the drummer not having to focus on Ableton or tuning their drums, mainly from a, you know, because going into a record, it holds a certain amount of weight. It can get in their heads. They can overthink it. They can switch out heads too soon or not enough. And I don't want them having to think about that. I want them to just think about the moment and play to what the record needs. And so having uh, a dedicated person to kind of watch the drums and, you know, in the middle of rehearsals, jump up there when everybody's on a break or whatever and switch out some heads or tweak the tuning, that's like an invaluable tool for me. It takes the drummer out of thinking about it. It takes the weight off of them. It puts a certain amount of trust in the team vibe. Um, it puts somebody that's more focused on that. And honestly, he's an expert at it. So it's just like extremely helpful having him around. 
Um, he doesn't even drum tech anymore, but somehow I talk him into helping us out every time it's time for us to do a record just because he's amazing at it. What snare are you guys using? Black Beauty, okay. always and forever. I've, I've assumed that, but, you know. It's the, it's the snare. Just get that. Um, six and a half? Six and a half by 14. Okay. Um, and I would say, I don't know, man. It's the best snare for the money that's most consistent across every i don't know for me it works i love black beauty i don't know maybe i'm biased now but i just feel like it's the best yeah i have one which, yeah. which lugs do you prefer is the question so that is the debate that never ends around here um i'm actually in the market for one for the studio i just bought a new studio drum kit we've never had a drum kit for the studio just studio it's always been like out of campus and we bring it in or we rent in or have a drummer bring in their own kit that kind of thing so we're gonna buy some um i'm a really big fan of the one vincent has he's one of our drummers here and on our team here he has the brass um hardware on it and it just i don't know um I forget what the, what are the what are the different options you there's like a number of options you can get. There's like well, the tube like, lugs and then yep. there's like the standard kind of seventies looking almost like diamond looking lugs. Yep. He has the tube ones, I believe. Yeah, that's 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 what mine is. I like I like the way it looks. Yeah, it looks awesome. Um looks kinda like old school. It looks kind of expensive. Yeah. I don't know. I like it. But yeah, Black Beauty forever. I had somebody tell me that the that the other lugs sound better. I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> well, that yeah, I don't know. I think it's just a style thing. Um I I love the brass look though. I think that that looks slick on on top of the metal body of it. I don't know. The Black Beauty just is great drum. I think you can't really go wrong with any of the combination lugs or whatever. Yeah. Do you guys use the standard hoops or do you put the die cast? Um, good question. I know Vincent's is different than the one we have at church and he cares enough about his hoops that he switches out the drum. But I don't know that I care. Yeah. That much. At that point, I'm just kind of like, hey, just hit consistent. That's what I care about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Drums, man. That's what everybody obsesses over in the recording world. But it's the most fun thing to record, I'll tell you that. Yeah, I've literally been on sessions where I've heard people say, like, yeah, we're going for the Elevation Tom thing. <laughs> These are like CCM records, you know. Dude, Elevation Tom thing is crazy. I have some friends that call us Tomovation. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. It's funny just, that you I, all are aware of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's whatever. It's a thing. It's a cultural, like, I feel like worship world. You have to have at least two floor toms. So you're not doing it right. Except that's just the joke because we actually only have one. And people think, and it's just a 16. It's not an 18. So week to week, on the weekends, we just have a 12 and a 16. 
But um, yeah, for studio projects and live records, I always like to have a 16 and an 18. But honestly, maybe two pieces of moon gel and really good tuning. That's it. That large diaphragm condenser to get that attack and low end extension and then a couple EQ tricks. Simple. Done. But it has taken me a lot of live albums to figure it out, for sure. <laughs>